0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by the Academy Opus Cassius, the Cheese Industry's unique center for professional development. For more information and to apply for courses, visit our website at www.academymons.com That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E
3: Hello, this is Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network. Today I am pleased to welcome Doctor Katherine Donnelly from the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences at the University of Vermont. Welcome, Catherine.
4: Good afternoon, Diane. Thank you so much. Oh,
3: you're very welcome. To clue in our audience, I want to tell them that you are an expert in cheese science, if anyone doesn't know, and you were educated at both the University of Vermont and North Carolina State University. How long have you been at the University of Vermont?
4: This is year number thirty-three for me. Oh my god! A long time. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I guess you've settled in.
4: <laughs> I would say so.
3: <laughs> now, your specialty is in Listeria is monocytogenes.
4: Monocytogenes. You- oh,
3: okay, okay. And I also noticed that your intro on the Vermont uh, website states that you that using pasteurized milk is not necessary. Uh, to making safe and tasty cheese?
4: Well, it's one of our tools, but my um, interest in listeria, I've spent most of my career developing detection methods and Mm -hmm. helping the dairy industry avoid contamination of this pathogen. Mm -hmm. And the reality when you're making cheese from pasteurized milk if you don't protect that cheese from environmental contamination, it probably has a risk greater than cheese made from raw milk because um, any cheese coming into contact with environmental listeria can be contaminated and can be a problem.
3: Mm-hmm. And most people, I think, uh, or not, not cheese people, don't realize that necessarily. They hear the word raw and they think that must be more dangerous
4: that's absolutely right.
3: Mhm. But the reason we're talking today is to discuss the amazing book you edited called The Oxford Companion to Cheese, which is a tome in its in and of itself at 849 pages. <laughs>
4: Yes, there is a lot of information in this book. <laughs>
3: and it's heavy to carry around.
4: <laughs> it makes a good book uh, doorstop. <laughs> yeah.
3: Now, what an undertaking this book must have been. Was it your idea, or did someone come to you with the idea?
4: Yeah, I was approached to be involved in this project mm-hmm. um, by Oxford University Press, mm-hmm. and um I think I probably would have gone running away with my arms up in the air (laughs) had I not already been approved for a sabbatical from the University of Vermont. Oh, okay. um, I actually had the time to take on the project, and then um, the more I learned about it, I thought for a whole host of reasons that it was um, a wonderful project to be involved in.
3: Now, so you had already applied for the sabbatical when the book came to
2: you.
4: That's correct. Oh, okay. in fact, I had another project in mind. I um, had a book proposal for a different topic mm-hmm. and then felt that um, I could just shift gears and take this work on. So it was very timely. Okay, How many years
3: ago did they approach you?
4: I think it was more than four years ago.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Were there many, many committees to make the initial decisions about the categories and how to even begin the process.
4: Yeah, it's so interesting to look at a book like this and really wonder um, how it all comes to be. And so the... um work that I did on my sabbatical was to really frame the scope of the book. Mm -hmm. And so um, the book is organized by topics Mm -hmm. and all of those topical entries have a head word. And so the head word describes what the entry is. Mm -hmm. And so my job during my sabbatical was to come up with 900 head words that could frame the scope of this book.
3: 900 headwords
4: 900
3: Now I was just thinking of the topics as listed in the front the first one being animal species breeds and husbandry Now how many headwords is included in that topic
4: Probably about 50. Um, <laughs> again, you know, how we get this great diversity of cheeses around the globe uh-huh. is to use different animal species and right. animal breeds. And each of those um, animals and breeds has milk of a different composition that right. ideal. Ideally suited for some cheeses and not others, and mm-hmm. so it's an important part of cheesemaking.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm just you know, flabbergasted that there were 900 categories.
4: <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. But what's interesting is, um, at least from that, um, you know, description of the 900 topics, mm-hmm. then we could go about putting together an editorial board that mm-hmm. could um, cover all of those subjects, mm-hmm. and then. Um, members of the editorial board could reach out to um, their colleagues or as a group, we had a lot of working um, meetings mm-hmm. where we would go through the headwords one by one and uh, come to consensus on who would be the best author to take on this topic mm-hmm. and, um, you know, if they were willing.
3: Mm-hmm. And then someone would reach out to, the, to that person.
4: Exactly, mm-hmm.
3: now, did you take charge of some categories more than others from the start just because they are up your sleeve or up your alley
4: yeah i 'm really interested in regulations, mm-hmm. and so I just wanted to make sure that that um, topic was well covered in the book, and so I took a lot of you know ownership on that one
3: mm-hmm. okay and and the writers. Were they selected in committee meetings?
4: Somewhat. Um, you know, we chose a great um, group of associate editors, mm-hmm. and they were chosen because they had um, contacts and knowledge of the topic, and mm-hmm. so... In many cases, we just had full confidence that they would reach out to the best individuals. But, mm-hmm. you know, there were some topics where all of us would come together and say, you know, even though this person could do a great job, I really think this per- person is the one to write the entry. Mm-hmm. And we also, um, I think what's unique about the book, we had 325 contributors mm-hmm. from 35 different countries, and so when you have that broad of an international scope, certainly my um, colleagues from France, from mm-hmm. Spain, from Italy would reach out to their um, their colleagues there and had a reach that was way beyond anything that mm-hmm. one person could do individually
3: right or even one of one of the editors in this country might not have had that reach either.
4: Not at all and yeah. I think had we limited the scope to um, writers and experts from the United States it would be a very different book
3: mm-hmm. Now did all the writers write in English or did some have to be translated?
4: Well, that's an interesting question. We certainly um, would come across... Maybe entries where um, it they were all done in English, but sometimes the meaning wasn't conveyed mm-hmm. in exactly the right form, and so we, you know, we just wanted to tap this expertise. And mm-hmm. I would reach out to those authors to say, "Look, don't worry about it being perfect English. We mm-hmm. have people that can help with that." And so, I think what we got was this just wonderful um, international scope and and content that reflects the passion that people have about cheeses from their country Mm -hmm. or their knowledge. There's just no substitute for that.
3: I agree. Um, Now, for a small example, uh, how were producers selected and how were cheese shops selected? Like, There's so many How did you go about deciding who to include?
4: Yeah, and that was really tricky. We knew we couldn't be all inclusive, mm-hmm. and we certainly didn't want to offend anyone. Mm-hmm. And so our disclaimer was um, you know, we're going to do the highways and the byways, and it's just a representative sampling, mm-hmm. not meant to be all inclusive, and that future editions of this book might include different cheese shops mm-hmm. or might include mm-hmm. different producers.
3: Mm-hmm. So now we by tried
4: to give a sampling.
3: By Highways and byways is the implication big and small?
4: Exactly. Big okay. and small. Okay. We That's a good. We certainly didn't want, um, you know, the most well-known or the largest only. Um, producers to dwarf some mm-hmm. of the special, unique um, mm-hmm. peacemakers that um, may not have ever gotten any attention. And, mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. In some cases was it first come first served like if you you know if if it presented itself on your desk did they get in and and the late ones didn't?
4: No, we no. didn't go about like that. Um again the project really started with the 900 headwords mm-hmm. and we stayed pretty true to that that mm-hmm. um you know, here's here's the balance that we want to achieve here, and mm-hmm. we agree this is the scope. And so we were pretty strategic mm-hmm.
3: about it. Okay. Now, was there a model for this book from somewhere else?
4: Well, the um, Oxford University Press had mm-hmm. published a number of cheese, or not cheese companions, but food companions. Mm-hmm. So the Oxford Companion to Beer and the Oxford Companion to Wine There was an Oxford Companion of Sugars and Sweets that had been Mm. published right before the cheese book. And so um, we... I looked at those as kind of guidance, Mm -hmm. but then when it came to the topic of cheese, um, we leaned on some very interesting international networks. The Worldwide Traditional Cheese Association Mm -hmm. is a group of experts around the world that really try and do scholarship Mm -hmm. on traditional cheeses that um, face potential extinction just due to new regulatory requirements, and we leaned heavily on that group for their expertise, Mm -hmm. but also to maybe memorialize some Hmm. cheese or memorialize some knowledge that, you know, when you're dealing with Iranian scientists and there's translation, Mm -hmm. it's just precious information.
3: Right. Now, were they affiliated in any way with Slow Food?
4: Yes, some mm-hmm. were slow food affiliated others um were not slow food affiliated mm-hmm. but um, dealt you know the European Union funds a lot of scientific research mm-hmm. on traditional foods, mm-hmm. and so it was really that educational network that we were reaching out to mm-hmm.
3: now were many more entries requested, and then either not written or edited out, or is that what you're saying about the 900? You you got everything you wanted.
4: Well, we ended up with 855 entries in total. Okay. And so from that 900, we decided that a few topics could be combined, mm-hmm. and so that whittled the list down somewhat. In terms of entries that were requested and didn't come in, I'm happy to say there were maybe 15 of those.
3: Wow. Which out of
4: 900 is amazing. That and
3: is. I, that is a I, lot of uh, helpful people.
4: It's a lot of helpful people who were just really passionate about the areas that they were writing about, and mm-hmm. that's really reflected in the writing.
3: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, for example, you know, looking through to figure out some ways of asking about how you went about the book, how did six separately named Pecorino's get in. And how how come those Pecorino's get in and not some others?
4: Right. And so that's where it came down to, so what's unique about these products? Mm-hmm. And um, do we have an author that could really make this a unique entry? Mm-hmm. And so... Those were really the pecorinos we chose to run with. Okay. Meeting those criteria, mm-hmm. certainly not uh, all inclusive. And we just knew at the beginning that we couldn't be all inclusive.
3: Right, right. And
4: just tried our best to appeal to readers that, you know, we're not meaning to admit anyone. Right, uh, right. It's just well, the I nature didn't, of the not
3: I beast. did not notice any Pecorinos missing, but I, I didn't know them all. It, it was more like, hmm, how did this one get in?
4: Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly.
3: So it might have been just a well-known expert, or absolutely okay. a well-known
4: ac- expert that mm-hmm. wanted to advocate for that perf- that particular mm-hmm. cheese, mm-hmm. or something about the um, unique production aspect or region of production.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, um, the area editors—that's how it's—that's how, how they're described in the book, how were they first selected? And there are many, many familiar names in cheese, like Kate Arding and Paul Kinstett and Heather Paxson and Mae Roach, but, uh, and also many European people that I don't know. But how, is that who you're talking about when you say you pick the people that could then lend their expertise?
4: Yes, somewhat. So many of the area editors Mm -hmm. had had prior affiliations Mm -hmm. with an institute that we ran at the University of Vermont for 13 years, the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese.
3: Okay. And
4: so either they had come to participate in our programs as international experts Mm -hmm. or were members of the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese like um, Paul Kinstead and mm-hmm. Nancy Almina. Mm-hmm. And um, I knew that they had special connections to this wider network and could be very resourceful mm-hmm. part of the editorial board.
3: Mm-hmm. Now, did you ever meet all of you?
4: I'm sorry, did I meet?
3: Did you ever have a big meeting with all of you? In-
4: yes. And oh. so that was the other little tease that I could give to members of the editorial board, um, my husband and I own a property in northern Vermont in Greensboro. Vermont, oh,
3: I've been there many times. It's lovely. And
4: it's a beautiful place. <laughs> and the property was a former inn, and so I would make a phone calls something like, well, if we could have a working weekend, we'd be delighted to host you in Greensboro and oh, take good great. care of you. And then when we have this cat Captive audience of area editors, mm-hmm. we'd sit down in our conference room and just go to work.
3: Oh, that's great. That's great. So, so how many really, times? It was work
4: and fun, I think, for everybody. And
3: how many, did any, did you ever have a meeting where absolutely everybody showed up? And did you also have Skype meetings on occasion? Or or how else did you communicate?
4: Right. So, um, some of our international colleagues obviously couldn't be there, but um, I would say most of the editorial board, at one time or another, was able to make one of the meetings, Mm -hmm. and... um, My colleague Giuseppe Lachitra from Sicily and Sylvie Lortal from France, they, I think, were the only two that couldn't make some of the meetings, but we were able to connect with them Mm -hmm. um, via phone and Skype.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have uh, everybody on Skype at once? No,
4: we didn't we didn't try that. Okay.
3: (laughs) Okay. Well we're gonna take a break. We'll be back in a few moments to continue talking to Kathy Donnelly about the Oxford Companion of Cheese.
1: The Academy Opus Cassius is the cheese industry's unique center for professional development, offering both practical and classroom training for cheese professionals ready to move their careers to the next level. The Academy is the only professional cheese school integrating hands-on practice, formal instruction, and curriculum-related visits in every course, and attracts students from such diverse countries as Australia, Venezuela, Ukraine, Canada, Sweden, Kenya, and India. Cheesemongering, cheese making, and affinage courses form the core curriculum. Sensory analysis training is practiced daily in every program. Applications are now open for the life of cheese in four days at the acclaimed Cellars at Jasper Hill in Vermont, May 30th through June 2nd. This is a great preparatory program for anyone planning to take the ACS CCP exam this summer. The Academy is also accepting applications for limited spaces in cheese in New York, an insider's tour, June 23rd through 26th, which will bring you to the Fancy Food Show, the Good Food Mercantile, and the Cheesemonger Invitational, as well as backstage visits to some of New York's best cheese spots. Upcoming in the fall, there are only a few spots left for students enrolling in the Academy's suite of courses, Essential Foundations for Cheese Professionals, and Affinage, the Art and Science of Maturing Cheese. The Academy will also be including an excursion to the Slow Food Cheese Festival in Bra, Italy. The extended program runs from September 11th through 22nd. For more information and to apply for this and other courses, visit our website at academymons.com. That's A-C-A-D-E-M-I-E hyphen dot com.
2: Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter.
3: Hello, it's Diane Stemple on Cutting the Curd with Kathy Donnelly, the editor of the Oxford Companion to Cheese. We're back Uh, I was reading your introduction, and you tell a story of a state dinner at Obama's White House. It made me very nostalgic, of course. Could you tell that? Could you share that with our listeners?
4: Sure, Diane. Um, So I was listening to the CBS Evening News, and um, it was a White House state dinner for French President Francois Hollande, and... um, When I talk about this dinner to my class of students, you know, I think of a White House chef and the pressure you're under when the French president is coming representing this amazing cheese culture. (laughs) What cheese do you select that isn't going to offend other statesmen in France? And on the CBS (laughs) Evening News, they actually flashed the menu. The cheese featured as part of the main course was Bailey, Hazen, Blue from the Cellars at Jasper Hill and American artisan cheese. And I thought when I saw that, (laughs) wow, American artisan cheese has has really come into its own. It was really exciting. And
3: you must have been so proud as a Vermonter also.
4: Absolutely. I think that, you know, having watched this artisan cheese industry in Vermont evolve for the past 30 years, I thought, Boy, here is victory. This is pretty amazing.
3: <laughs> I wonder, I'd like to be a, uh, a bug on the table to hear what they thought of the Bailey, Hazen, Blue at the dinner.
4: <laughs> yeah, my <laughs> sense is there were probably a lot of fans after
3: that Right, dinner. right. They were probably duly impressed.
4: <laughs> I would think so. Uh,
3: anyway, also, could you tell us, um, on a more serious note could we talk about the differences between the European attitudes towards raw milk cheese and our FDA's current approach?
4: Yeah, it's a topic, again, I've devoted a lot of time and scholarship to this issue. I think it's important. When you look at a lot of the um, European AOC or AOP and PDO cheese varieties, those regulations stipulate that they must be made from raw milk. And in Europe, and especially in France, they believe that... um, you can assure the safety of raw milk through use of very good hygienic practices Mm -hmm. with the premise that you have to... The only way you can make good quality cheese is to start out from good quality raw milk Mm -hmm. and you think about what a challenge that is to manage milk production microbiologically so that raw milk can be transformed into these wonderful cheeses without Mm -hmm. any off flavors, without Mm -hmm. any defects. That is an incredible challenge that really speaks to the quality of this raw milk. Mm -hmm. In the United States, we have just the opposite philosophy that, well, we can only make cheese from pasteurized milk because it's the only way that could assure its safety. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, if you look at the standards for um, pasteurized milk, you're, you know, producing milk for past- intended for pasteurization on a fairly large scale. Mm-hmm. You're right away refrigerating that milk. The French would tell you and have published lots of scientific research saying if you're going to make cheese, the absolute worst thing you could do to that milk is refrigerate it because suddenly you get a population shift away from desirable mesophilic organisms to psychotrophic organisms that right away start to degrade the quality of that milk. They degrade the proteins. Mm -hmm. They degrade the fats. They're producing off flavors. And right away, you're just destroying some of the best characteristics of milk.
3: But that's the mantra, but that's taste, taste, uh, putting taste as the standard,
4: not only taste,
3: not only taste, safety. okay, because, safety too.
4: Again, when you refrigerate, and this has been shown in in French publications. Mm. When you refrigerate milk, you get bacterial population shifts away from, like, the desirable lactobacilli, the protective organisms. You start selecting for microbial pathogens Hmm. that grow at refrigeration temperatures, Ah. like Euromonas, like Listeria. Ah, Okay,
3: so you actually change the climate in favor of some bad organisms.
4: Absolutely, okay. absolutely, and I did so not that's know why that. the French would say, "Don't do that." Okay. And so the way that we're producing a lot of our milk in this country, and again because of the large volumes that we're using for cheese production, mm-hmm. we have to pasteurize that milk. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it just wouldn't be a stable product for utilization.
3: And because I think, it's so large, because the quantities are so
4: large. Well, because you're so doing large. the large volumes, you're mm-hmm. you know storing your transporting milk in tank trucks where Mm -hmm. there's an opportunity for contamination, you're Mm -hmm. storing it in silos, you're refrigerating it for many hours, possibly Mm -hmm. days. And so um, pasteurization actually reduces those populations and absolutely does ensure the safety. But there are other ways that you can achieve equivalent levels of safety to cheese made from pasteurized milk.
3: Mm-hmm. Would you recommend that the larger, very larger scale cheese makers do? refrigerate and pasteurize? or
4: Yeah, and they almost have to Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. the production system. And in order to achieve a level of safety, you absolutely have to employ pasteurization. But it's interesting, the um, governments of Australia and New Zealand published a series of very comprehensive risk assessments looking at... um, Swiss hard cheeses made from raw milk Mm -hmm. and um, Roquefort and Italian grana cheeses, and concluded that all of those cheeses carried a level of safety that was equivalent to cheese made from pasteurized milk. Mm -hmm. Why, in the case of Italian grana and Swiss hard Swiss cheeses, Mm -hmm. the curd during the make procedure for those cheeses, the curd reaches a temperature. Temperature of 48 degrees centigrade, which is m- way beyond the um, heat treatment requirements used in pasteurization, huh. and so provided that the curd during cheese making reaches a temperature of 48 C, the Australian government deemed that those cheeses mm. carry a level of safety equivalent to cheeses mm. made from pasteurized milk.
3: So the recipe that is used ensures the safety.
4: Exactly. The cheese making ah. technology okay. ensures the safety. And so you see in a lot of these traditional practices how um, safety is achieved through the use of all of these steps that um, combine to make a product that is microbiologically safe.
3: Hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, did you have, um, I'm sure you heard about the recall of the Volto Creamery people. Yes, do you feel that's going to have immediate ramifications through the cheese making world?
4: Absolutely. And again, um all of us that care about cheese and especially cheese makers, we have an absolute obligation to assure the safety of those products for mm-hmm. our consumers. and so, um when things go wrong, we have to step back to say, what can we do differently? What might have been overlooked? How can we move forward and assure that something like this doesn't happen again?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever consult with cheesemakers about how they can help their situations?
4: I do. Um, mm-hmm. i We and for many, many years at the University of Vermont. We've received a lot of grant funding to do Mm -hmm. just that, to put programs in place, research programs where Mm -hmm. we can send our technical team out to farms to do assessments Mm -hmm. for them microbiologically. If we find problems, we make recommendations on what can be changed to Mm -hmm. render a safer product, Mm -hmm. let them implement those changes, and then go back and do another microbiological audit... To see if it and worked. To see if it mm-hmm, worked. Mm-hmm. And in the cases where we've done that... For instance, if we found listeria on an initial assessment, after the recommendations, we've never found listeria again. And so it really shows Mm -hmm. that you give cheesemakers the tools that they need to help with safety, that's a risk that can be managed Mm -hmm. and is being well-managed by our cheesemakers.
3: In your studies initially, did you very quickly gravitate towards cheese?
4: Not initially. When Mm I um, first got involved in listeria research, there had been an outbreak of listeriosis linked to pasteurized milk in the Boston, Massachusetts area. This occurred back in 1983. Mm -hmm. So at that time... Listeria wasn't recognized as a foodborne pathogen, so there weren't even methods to detect the organism. Mm-hmm. And so my laboratory developed some of the first um, detection methods that could be used for mm-hmm. examining foods for listeria. Mm-hmm. And then we um, worked collaboratively with the FDA since the efficacy of pasteurization was being challenged by the Centers for Disease Control, mm-hmm. myself and several um, FDA scientist did a series of studies over a number of years that proved that pasteurization was very effective in in inactivating listeria Mm -hmm. and that contamination of products had to have occurred through post-process recontamination and Mm -hmm. not listeria-surviving pasteurization to begin with.
3: So your research could be sort of used uh, pro-pasteurization also.
4: Absolutely, mm-hmm. but um, again, that recognition of listeria as an important environmental contamination source of contamination mm-hmm. um, kind of led me into the cheese world mm-hmm. and how can we protect cheeses? Mm-hmm. Again, a certain category of cheeses, the illegally produced queso fresco varieties, mm-hmm. uh, Hispanic-style cheese that has characteristics that re- really allow listeria to grow to very high level. Mm -hmm. Um, that I think a lot of the um, outbreaks that have occurred have been linked to that category of cheese Mm -hmm. versus um, cheeses that are legally produced, legally distributed, and manufactured, um, just helping the legal process, achieve controls that could help make those products safe.
3: Mm -hmm. When you were getting your original degree in animal science, what were you planning as a career?
4: That's a really interesting question. I went to to graduate school because I was really interested in probiotic bacteria, Mm. even way back in those days, um, Lactobacillus acidophilus was Ah, an organism that I had done a lot of work with, Mm -hmm. and so um, that organism really informed my graduate study, Mm -hmm. and so I was always interested in beneficial organisms associated with dairy products, and Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. cheese is a very natural extension (laughs) of all of that.
3: Did you grow up in Vermont?
4: I grew up in Maine.
3: Oh, okay. Did you eat a lot of cheese growing up? Or- I
4: not only ate a lot of Cheese, but um, one of my very fond memories as an internship experience, I traveled around the state of Maine with a dairy inspector in Maine named Dana Small, mm-hmm. and we would go and visit small-scale cheese-making operations. And I distinctly remember a goat cheese producer in Damrascata, Maine, mm-hmm. who um, had a farm right on the Maine coast, mm-hmm. and all of the goats in his herd, he had made a boat transom plate with their names in gold lettering. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. (laughs) So
3: you were impressed right away. (laughs) I was
4: impressed. I thought, this is idyllic.
3: That's interesting. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about the Oxford Companion to Cheese. It's just such an amazing uh, wealth of information. I, I would expect people who are taking the CCP exam to be, you know, very avid customers of the book.
4: It's probably a really good resource, but (laughs) yes, it's been a delight to speak with you this afternoon.
3: Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. This is Diane Stemple saying goodbye on Cutting the Curd on Heritage Radio Network.